Hi, welcome. This is the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. In this series, we speak with doctors from a range of interesting backgrounds, examining their personal and professional journeys, hearing their fascinating stories, their passions, insights, and advice. I'm your host, Andrew Bracey. I'm back in the interviewer's seat for this episode. Um, a huge thanks to Dr. Jeff Toogood and his guest in the last episode, Dr. Mike Myers. If you've not already listened to that one, I recommend going back at some stage, taking the time. It was a really interesting chat about doctors' mental health uh, between two serious, serious experts in that field. My guest in this episode is Melbourne-based geriatrician, Dr. Kate Krigorovich. We recorded this interview on July 1st, which had been a big week or so, um, obviously, with most Australian jurisdictions back in lockdown as governments sought to get the recent outbreaks and clusters back under control. Uh, there'd obviously been much debate and frustration being voiced about Australia's vaccine program rollout and government's handling of this pandemic in general. So given that context, it was a really interesting opportunity to hear from a geriatrician, someone who's been spending the last 18 months of this pandemic at the coalface, working to support and keep safe some of our most vulnerable Australians. And in this chat, she talks about her experiences on that front and how she's felt a responsibility at times to speak out on behalf of her patients. That's just a small part of our conversation though. The, the bulk of it actually focuses on her journey as someone who never really considered herself smart enough to study medicine uh, in the beginning, to taking herself through the challenges of completing training while raising a young family, how serendipity actually was what led her to geriatric medicine and, and ultimately fueled what's become a lifelong fascination for her with aging, how she completed her PhD along the way, taught herself to become a writer, secured a book deal, and most recently, um, went through the process of bootstrapping a, a health business from scratch. She also talks about how she manages imposter syndrome along the way in order to achieve um, all these kinds of goals that she challenges herself with. Kate's got some really great perspectives and advice and I really enjoyed her conversation. Um, before we get to that, some exciting news. I've been flagging the CCIM 2021 event, obviously, and I'm excited to be able to tell you that Registrations are now officially open for this year's event, which will be happening at the Novotel Sydney Brighton Beach from the 5th to the 7th of November. The CCIM team has been working hard behind the scenes to put together a jam-packed day of pre-conference workshops, two full days of sessions. There's going to be a live podcast recording uh, with special guests, and of course, there'll be a Saturday night networking event thanks to Blue Given. Um, after last year's virtual event, it'll be so exciting to get the CCIM clan back together in person for that one. For more info, to register, go to creativecareersinmedicine.com, head to the events page uh, for all the info and the links to be able to register. I also want to tell you that the deadline has been extended for abstracts from anyone who may want to present. So if you're keen to get up on stage, check out the links to on the CCIM Facebook page, but you'll need to be quick because that clock is ticking. Obviously, check the events page closer to the date for event updates and speaker announcements and we look forward to seeing you all in November. Anyway, that's probably enough for me. So without further ado, here is Dr. Kate Gregorievich. Dr. Kate Gregorievich, thank you so much for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
No worries. I think I've started a few interviews um, with similar observation um, in recent times, but even by recent standards, we're speaking at a very pretty strange time, pretty frustrating, confusing time for many Australians. We're recording this on the 1st of July, so it's been a, uh, quite a week for health workers, especially who've been at the cold face of this pandemic for around 18 months now. Now, I wanted to ask you um, at the top, um, as a geriatrician working with COVID patients and obviously older patients who are more vulnerable in many ways, given this is front of mind for many, many people at the moment. Can I, can I perhaps ask, start by asking you to talk a bit about your experiences over the last 18 months and the, and the responsibilities you've felt at times to, to sort of speak up on, on your patient's behalf? Yeah, look, it's been a wild ride. And just thinking back, this time last year was just when Melbourne's second wave was taking up. And I, yeah. I live in Melbourne. Yeah. And, you know, we saw the numbers rising and rising. But then I think it got out of control in ways that even those that are sort of working at the front line didn't quite see coming. And so I, the hospital where I work um, during the peak Melbourne second wave had an outbreak there. And so, yeah, and this was in the aged care wards. So these were older adults who already had medical problems who were already frail. And so being put in that situation is really nothing like anything I've ever experienced at work. It was, on one hand, it was, I had the right skill set to do the work and that felt really humbling. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, it's really emotional seeing people get sick, seeing their families not able to come in, seeing people die. It's certainly been a wild ride. And then this year things have happened that I never saw coming. As last year, someone had told me that by now we had some great vaccinations that are really effective against significant disease. Um, but I guess the slowness of the rollout mm. and people would be a little bit hesitant and I wouldn't have seen that coming as well. Although I must say now, people are starting to realise why it's so important to get vaccinated. So that's been, although it's been really hard to see other people in Australia locked down, the positive has been that it seems to be causing an uptake in vaccination. I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, you you say it's a wild ride. I can't imagine what it's like having never been uh, in in that position myself. I mean, it it must get overwhelming at times, surely. Look, it has its moments, definitely. But, you know, the part of that as well is these things, and some of the things I love about medicine, it is a team sport. And the nurses I worked with, they're the real heroes in this sort of thing. The nurses, the cleaners. You know, the um, dietitian and speech pathologist who turned up as soon as they were able to because our patients had really poor appetite. Mm. And the residents, they, the junior medical doctors, they spend a lot more time on the ward than I do. I'd usually spend time on the ward and go and call families. And so this is one of these things that a lot of us, although it was a really hard thing to go through, we also had this shared experience and people we could debrief with. Can I ask you about what sort of what your day-to-day is like these days? I mean, we've sort of touched on some of the, the, the elements of, of your, your role, but can you talk about, like, I guess, like many people I speak to in this series, your work roles are spread across a few different settings and a few different um, roles. How do you balance that all, and what's a typical day or week look like for you? Yeah, my typical day or week varies a lot. <laughs> and I work, I work um, only in public hospital now, and I do a mixture of community and outpatient and ward work. So I do some general medicine, which I enjoy because of the variety. 
done a new role recently doing trauma geriatrics for older adults with trauma. Uh-huh. Um, I also have a role within subacute at home. Then I've got my extracurricular activities. So I write most days. I like to get up in the morning and do that. Yeah. Um, also taking on other roles, uh, I guess, within the hospital using some of my other skills. So I'm still trying to participate in some research or getting, getting some research projects going and supervising and teaching and also being on committees and things within the hospital. So I'm really lucky that I get to do so many things. And, of course, balancing that out with the needs of my children. Absolutely. I mean, as a parent myself, I, I can relate to, the, to that, especially at the moment with school holidays. Um, here in New South Wales, at least. Does I mean, with that with that much variation, does it start to feel like a grind ever, or is it? Or is there enough there to sort of keep you keep things sort of nice and fresh and, and, and dynamic? I actually really enjoy the variety, and there are moments when it can feel like I've got a few too many things on. But for me, the way my brain works, I thrive on challenge and I thrive on being faced with lots of new problems. So I think it actually makes me more productive and more creative doing so many different things. Sure. I mean, it really does come to, it's a, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a personality thing. And um, I think we've spoken in previous episodes about how, how you know, Certain people with certain personalities can 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 do various things, and then and other people might be suited to to, to more um, uh, acutely focused um, <laughs> sort of set of set of roles. I guess. Yeah, definitely. And and you know, when I was a trainee, I never sort of saw myself having these different roles. But I think when you're a trainee, you're learning so much, and I really enjoyed that. And so. I've got this sort of constant need to challenge myself, and I think that's part of why I keep taking on so many different things. <laughs> well, you know, a career in medicine is definitely a good way to challenge yourself. I mean, going going back to that, well, how did you know? Obviously, you mentioned that this is something that you've you've always had in you that that, that drive to, to want to be able to challenge yourself with with things like this. What where does that drive come through? Where, where did, how does someone get to that point where you are now? We'll talk about some of the things you've done in sort of later, but you know, obviously, you're as we've mentioned, you're a, you're a geriatrician. You've completed your PhD, you're now a published author, you've got um, your own business as well as the, um, the, a lot of the roles that you've just um, spoken about. Where did all that start from? What, what was the drive to, to, towards medicine um, from, from the beginning? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I remember when I was in high school, I, didn't, I never thought I was smart enough to do medicine. Right. And so I didn't really think to apply for it when I finished high school. And it was only once I started university and started off doing a science arts degree. Mm-hmm. And look, I will admit my first year university marks were not amazing. <laughs> there may have been a little too much time spent at the pub. But once <laughs> I, I pulled my socks up. To that. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Once I once I pulled my socks up, um, started working a bit harder and thinking about where I wanted to go, I realized that medicine was really the right thing for me. And it was because you know, I had that drive, you know, that idealistic drive. To, I wanted to help people, mm. but I also love science as well. I love understanding how our bodies work and how we can apply that to people to try and help make people's lives better. And so probably a lot of people listening to this will have that same kind of idealism gone through the same mm. experience. Okay. And then going through medicine and getting up to the other side, I went down the physician training pathway. And for me, that was sort of a very natural fit. I didn't really think a lot about going down other pathways, but 
I really enjoy doing physician training. I enjoy the variety. I enjoy the environment. And I was lucky that the hospital I was at, I felt very supported. And I think that really helped. And then I ended up coming a slightly roundabout way and specialising in geriatrics because that certainly wasn't the original plan either. What was the original plan? What were the other options that, that, that might have happened had you not sort of um, ended yeah, up Yeah, so I actually started off doing rheumatology. Right. And, yeah, my first year of advanced training in rheumatology was also when I became pregnant with my oldest child, who's uh-huh. now nine. Yeah. And in, at that time, and I hope things are different now, it wasn't a terribly well-trod pathway to have children during advanced training right. in rheumatology. And when I wanted to come back, um, when my oldest was seven months old, I was lucky enough to be walking down the street and I crossed paths with a friend who I'd been planning to contact because I knew she was training to be a geriatrician. Right. And she was actually pregnant and planning to go on maternity leave from her part-time job exactly when I wanted to go back. <laughs> I know, I know. It's just one of these moments in life when you just cross paths with someone. So I took on her part-time role and I've just never looked back. What was it about geriatric medicine that um, that sort of hooked you in so quickly? Yeah, so geriatric is quite different to a lot of other physician specialties. So we take a really holistic view. Our focus is we sort of take a step back, look at the whole patient, not just trying to get one medical condition just right, but looking at what really matters to that person in their life, what their goals are, what their social context is. And this is a really satisfying way to practice medicine. And so, you know, when you're trying to work with people with these really big picture goals, like being able to get home again from hospital, um, staying independent, this is really satisfying. Were there sort of role models that sort of that, that helped you sort of see that quite quickly or was it something that was just self-evident in the field? Oh, look, definitely role models. And I've had some fantastic career mentors who've just made a huge difference and really influenced the way I practice medicine, the way I think. Um, and as well as that being a woman having children while I was training, because I had mm-hmm. two children during my training and then one afterwards. Luckily, in, within geriatric medicine, there had already been some female trainees both through having kids. So it was a bit of a more well-trod pathway. But there were also some amazing people, both men and women, who really went out of their way and continue to do so to try and create equality for female trainees. And currently in physician training, it's really gendered around people being able to take time off of parental leave right. because there's a lack of consistency and if you take more than I believe it's eight weeks off there's a risk you can have your whole year not accredited and this disproportionately affects women not men because women at that age are much more likely to take time off and so having these really key people in my career senior people who saw this as an important issue was really helpful well as as you said earlier you you would hope that in the nine years since you were first put into that position of having to you know, feeling like you had to make that decision, you would hope that things have changed substantially. But uh, as you say, there's still a way to go in certain areas, I'm sure, sadly enough. But. Oh, yeah, look, there are, there are. And it's really great. I feel like I'm in a position now where I can advocate really strongly for other women going through this. Although I'd also love to advocate for any men who want to take parental leave. Awesome. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm hoping. <laughs> and, you know, I'll extend a period of leave. But... 
I, I think now, as I said, it's one of the good things. Now I'm a consultant. I've got a stable job in a really supportive yeah. department. I am in a position to to be that role model that, that you were looking to looking out for back in the, in those those days as well. Yeah. Um, you started to speak uh, just a moment ago about um, you know what what was the, the attracted you to geriatric medicine, and I've I've heard you speak previously in sort of researching, sort of reading a little bit about you and your background. Have you heard you speak about aging and and how you see it and what it entails? The it's pretty obviously you have a, a real curiosity and your fascination with aging. What 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 is it that 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 fascinates you about aging, and what does aging actually mean to you? Aging is the result of our essential biological processes for life. Like, that's my take on it. One of the really interesting things about aging is how little agreement there is across really top scientists in the field as to what it actually is. Um, and I think I said, my take home from all of it is I think it's a little bit of everything. And it's something that's happening to all of us. It happens from the time we conceive some of these cellular processes. And something that our lifestyle could have a huge impact on the rate that we accumulate cellular damage and this then has an impact on our function and whether we're likely to get chronic diseases, whether we're going to have be fit and well and active into older age. The other thing as well, aging is also very much a social phenomenon as well. And old age and what we think of as the roles around old age, again, that's something that's socially generated. It's not always in keeping with biology. You know, certain things are, and yeah. women who are in their 70s aren't having babies, but there's a lot of other ideas around it that don't necessarily have to be that way. And so it's this really fascinating intersection of the things all the way from the cellular level to some of the really bigger picture things in our society, like what we consider gender roles, where the, what someone's socioeconomic status is, all of these things kind of intersect to create aging and to impact on how well we're able to age. And I think at the moment in Australia, it's an absolutely critical time to start thinking about this, and particularly in terms of preventative health, because we're living in a time where most people are going to reach very old age. And the challenge is that we don't want to just live, keep living, but not in good health or not with good physical function. It's how we can have people living not just a long lifespan, but a long health span. And that's what really got me interested in this area and translating some of that really fascinating knowledge into something that is accessible for people. Wow. I mean, I guess that was, that's essentially the, the inspiration, I guess, for Staying Alive which is your book, which, which came out last year, um, for those who, who aren't familiar. Um, it, the, the book is aimed at educating people around how they, they might avoid or manage um, major diseases that impact us as we age, um, including, you know, things like, there's heart health, diabetes, dementia, um, and how they, they might be able to, the, to maximise their health and quality of life as they age. Or, or I think the, 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 the tagline that I read was the science of living healthier, happier and longer, um, to, to put it a little bit um, neater. Um, <laughs> I understand you wrote the book in, in about six months, is that right? Can you sort of explain how you managed to do that? Was this a lockdown thing? <laughs> how did you write a book in six months? No, I, know. I, wrote, it in, I wrote it in 12 months. Right. Um, or just 12 months. Just okay. 12 months. Yes. And it was while that I was still doing my PhD. As a writer, as, as, a, well as, as, my, wanting, as, yeah. as a wannabe writer myself. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was while I was still doing my PhD. I, I, I don't recommend. Um, and basically, the how I did it is discipline and routine. Yeah. 
And I think that's one of the things sometimes when people are thinking about creative projects, it's thinking about waiting for inspiration. And really when you're trying to do creative projects like writing, it's often about just actually putting words on a page. Mm. And one way that I've, I guess, become more creative and better at this is having children is I'm so thankful that whenever I get a window, it's so precious that I can kind of work anywhere, anytime. And so if I get, right. you know, a half hour window, I can just smash out, you know, 100, 200 words. They might not be very good words, but it I can does. get it done. Yeah. yeah. And so the way I did it, I set myself word targets. I got up at five every morning and I worked for an hour, hour and a half. Often while my then uh, how old was he? Two, <laughs> two-year-old watched the same episode of Paw Patrol on my phone <laughs> again and again. Well, yeah, we've all been there as parents. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's a gl- the glamour of the working parent life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you sort of answered my next question. You know, how hard it was to stay focused, given all the other competing factors in your life. I mean, you, you as you, I think you just mentioned that you're doing this at the same time as doing your PhD. Was you know, was doing the PhD at the same time, you know, were you able to, was that, was that part of the inspiration for, for just writing? Where, where did that, where, how did those two sort of um, coexist and, and, and influence one another? So one of the reasons I started writing, one of it was because I wanted to be able to put accurate health information out there. Mm. And one of the other reasons I started writing a blog is I was starting a PhD and I thought I wasn't very good at writing. Right. Um. Yeah, and so I decided to start writing as yep. practice for I that to get better yeah. at it. Yeah, and I did. I got better at it over time. And so the PhD was really the driver for me to write the book. And my PhD focused on the concept of health assets and frailty or health assets and positive psychosocial factors. Right. And this concept called solidogenesis, which is rather than health as the absence of disease by avoiding risk factors, Health is something valuable in its own right, something that's good, something that allows you to engage with life that you get by adding more good things in. And that's really the overarching theme of the book because my whole concept is, and my main argument is that there's no point living as long as possible if you're not enjoying your life. And so one of the things, yeah, and so one of the things I really link in with the book is not just how these lifestyle things can help you live longer, but how they can have a positive impact on quality of life in the present. So, which again is an idea that really came from my PhD work, and goes back to that you know that that the, the core of, of all of this is what you were talking about before, which is looking at what is most important to, to people and how are they going to live those values and those and, and live that life that they want to be living, and it's going to be different for every person. Exactly, and you know one of the things I've learned from my patients in their eighties and nineties when I ask them what's most important, no one's ever said to me, "I want to live as long as possible." They say things like, my 90-year-old patient, that I want to go dancing with my wife. Mm. That's what that's what really matters. Yeah. And so I think, you know, in a way, we all live our lives making these kinds of decisions. We all live our lives to get some enjoyment. We spend time with people we like, we eat foods we like. And so how you can make a framework for that that also increases your chances of living as long as possible. So what... How did the, I mean, you sort of answered part of my, my next question about how the book came about. How about the, the logistics of that in terms of, um, you know, the you know, yeah, having a publishing deal? Like for those, you know, there are many people out there who, who would love to aspire to, to be writers themselves. How did, how did that sort of the mechanics of all that come together? Was this a case of did you have, were you approached or did, did you have to sort of shop an idea around once you had a bit of a structure? How, how, did, how did that all work? So after I had the idea, I Googled how to write a book outline (laughs) 
and <laughs> good old Google. I found one which was um I, I found one which I copied structure off. So I, I did that. So I'd written introduction, chapter outline, competing titles. So you, you can find this stuff on Google. And then I was ready to start thinking how I was going to get it out. Um, around the time up, and then I actually spoke to someone I knew in the publishing industry and she thought it sounded like a great idea. So I had a little bit of a, a nibble early. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, then that's sort of all, nothing that's happening. Then I wrote an article in The Age and I first, sorry, or Sydney Morning Herald, depending on where you are. Yep. <laughs> the first I knew that it had been published was that I actually had an email turn up from a literary agent who I'd actually been Googling this particular literary agent. So, again, one of these moments of serendipity. And she was saying, oh, have you thought about writing a book? And I said, well, actually, yes, I have. And so I sent her the book outline and she offered to represent me. And so, for anyone who doesn't know, a literary agent is someone who acts on behalf of the writer mm-hmm. and essentially liaises with publishers. And so you can get a pub, my understanding is you can get your book published without an agent, but you're kind of sending your book into a big splash pile yeah. and it may never get looked at. So, I mean... And... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, would, you, would you think you would have um, kept going had you not had that nibble? I mean, it sounds like you were, it was something you were, that you were enjoying doing anyway and it was sort of rewarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was about to start really <coughs> trying to approach people. As I said, I was about to, start, I was about to approach this agent directly um, and start approaching other agents, but luckily I was approached instead. So what were some of the lessons that you learned while you were writing this book? I mean, obviously, this is your first book. And as you say, you, you started from a completely standing start. You're Googling how to how to actually write a book. What were some of the, the most important lessons that you learned through the process? Um, look, I think for me, as I mean, I had a little bit of a profile before I got a book deal because I'd written, I was, I'd written a few columns for The Age, and that mm-hmm. definitely helped. Um, I think as well with it, as I said, having the book outline and thinking very carefully about what you want your message to be in a pitch. And so, you know, when you write a book outline, the first first little bit is the first few sentences of what your book's about. And so you've got to make something work really hard on that bit to make it relatively compelling. Mm-hmm. I'd also written sample chapters because they want to know that you can write. Yeah, for sure. So there was a couple of those in there as well. And, it, yeah, it's, I'm just trying to think what else. Yeah, and I think as well with writing, almost everything I write, I feel like it's terrible. Um, I'm not a kid, you know, then they turn out okay. Um, and <laughs> one of these things with writing a book, like my my approach is I don't judge myself. I just get the ideas on the page. They're super clumsy, but it gets it out there and it gives you something to work with. And so I think just, again, getting in always a state of flow when you're doing a project yeah. like this and being being non-judgmental to yourself, and then but then having you know taking the time actually I guess and you've I've certainly got the, the work ethic as I think as as you've talked about to go back and sort of then sort of you know mold those some of those raw ideas into something a bit more readable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And look, I'm not a trained writer, but even before I'd written the book, I was already writing regular blogs, and so yeah. I was getting you were exercising the, that muscle. Yeah, I was. Yeah, that's right. So it wasn't just kind of. Like I, I've gotten better and better at writing as I've done more of it, but it is something that I've worked at and something that, as I said, I did a lot of stuff 
that no one read before <laughs> anything got published. Which is the best way to do it, in my experience. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, of course, in, in, this, in this whole mix um, that we're talking about, somewhere in all of this um, comes the, the 3612 project. Um, it's sort of, to, you know, I, I guess one way of describing it is, that it is essentially a health subscription service or a project aimed at 40-plus-year-old women. Um, with, it includes everything from exercise routines and schedules, Tai Chi, mindfulness meditation, yoga, activity challenge, a host of recipes and, and a whole lot more sort of stuff going on. The name I, comes from the design of the model, obviously. There's, you know, three exercise sessions a week, people getting involved, you know, moving six days per week and a series of three 12-week programs. So this is a collaboration between yourself and an exercise physiologist, Cassandra Smith, and I'm, I'm guessing a number of other collaborators. How did this, how did that come about? Where did that fit into the mix and, and what was the inspiration for it? I guess it's sort of tied to a lot of things we've already been talking about. Yeah, so where this came from is that when I walk into an exercise home, I see more women than men. And it's not just women do live longer than men, but actually a lot of this comes because women live longer in poorer health. Right. And so women start off with lower peak bone and muscle mass than men. And this then goes downhill and can then lead to someone in the 80s and 90s not being able to you know, stand up from a chair. Mm. And it also comes about because women are less likely to exercise than men for a variety of reasons, often related to having a lot of caring responsibilities, home responsibilities. Women are often also embarrassed to go to gym and they get, we get, so much forced on us about ideal bodies and then if you don't have that ideal body, you're actually feeling embarrassed to exercise in public. Yeah. And so we wanted to create an evidence-based program for women. We really were to focus on strength training to try and give women the confidence to get engaged in exercise, to try and make exercise something that they do as a gift for themselves, something that you do because it makes you stronger, which makes you feel better rather than exercising to try and fit into a narrow body ideal. That's really interesting. So, I mean, in terms of how the how you came up with the model, what how did you design that? I mean, you know, in, 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 not only the, the model of the program, but the, 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 the way it was going to be delivered. Because um, obviously it's, this is the – if you had anyone that's had a look at it, well, there's all sorts of different content involved in terms of video and stuff. How did you, you know – did you have a clear idea from the get-go or was there was something similar perhaps in a different setting that you'd seen that you thought might be able to be used as a template for, for this kind of thing? Where, where did it come from? So we looked at a lot of other different programs mm. and Cass especially did a lot of the groundwork around this because this she's a qualified exercise. Yeah, Cassandra yep, Smith, yep, that's yep. right. Yeah, because she's a qualified exercise physiologist. Yep. So she looked at other things and we thought about what would be the best way to deliver it. And with all of this, there were three people involved and the third is my husband. Uh-huh. And so, which is something that's been a real passion project, something that we bootstrapped, something that, I said, he did all of the web design side of things. Right. And so we, used, I said, we tried to use all of these other, we, we looked at a lot of other things and tried to make it as, as accessible as possible and user-friendly. So, I mean, obviously, this is with all the spare time that you've got lying around uh, in your life, <laughs> given all the other things right, you've got, yeah. got doing. Um, sort of, um, was there a lot that you guys, by the sounds of it, had to learn? I mean, the videos, for instance, were you shooting the, the videos yourselves or was were you able to, to get a, you know, that, that done sort of um, by production? How, or what, how, how did that come together? 
No, we ended up shooting a lot of it during lockdown. So, yeah, we had to do a lot of it ourselves. But interestingly, it actually still works well. And given that we were bootstrapping this, we also took the attitude that, you know, we wanted to try and create as much content as we as we ourselves as we could. Mm. And ultimately, we will put more money, some money into marketing it. But we were able to do quite a lot ourselves. I mean, I guess we, we had to as well with the restrictions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had well, I guess we that's exactly, it. yeah, that's, you know, you know it's the, the the mother of all invention, I suppose. But um, how how about in terms of the, the business side of it? Did, did you guys do you guys have have experience in, from a business perspective of how you're going to, to to make this into a viable sort of product, sellable um, product? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's been ticking along. I must say, it's one of these things with unfortunate timing. We planned to properly launch last year, and then of course. There was a little pandemic. Yeah, you might was, have heard yeah, about. Yeah, I think yeah, 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 that, that one. Yeah, so, yeah, right. Yeah, and so we, our plan was really to start building our profiles, to start doing some in-person events, which sort of um, drives some engagement personally. But then, of course, all of that fell apart. Yeah. Then again, best laid plans. I got sucked into doing COVID work. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was yeah, we both had a lot going on. So mm. we're looking at this point in time, and again, it's how we best use our time, how we best use our expertise, but looking at probably engaging someone to do some marketing for sure, us sure. because it seems to be a good way to use a little bit of money that we've built up yep. rather than putting the time in ourselves because I think someone else will be able to do it much more efficiently than I would. <laughs> sure. I mean, I guess that's a lesson. It's always okay to ask for help when, when you need it. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, you know, so we're really proud of what we've made. Cass has almost finished a PhD. She really is an expert on bone and muscle health. I've tried, I've provided webinars and really accurate information. We're a body neutral program. You know, we're not doing before and after photos. We're trying to really not, we're trying to really make them feel good about themselves and that they deserve health. Which mm. sometimes I think some women have trouble, um, have trouble with that thought just, you know, when we're trained to put other people's needs before our own. And so we're really proud of what we've done, hoping we'll get to properly promote it later on this year. Well, fingers crossed for you. I mean, it's genuinely an amazing project. I hope it does um, really get off the ground and start flying for you guys. Given Thank you. everything that we've been talking about, one of the I'm interested in that, one of the big issues that pops up in CCIM chats quite often, um, I guess partly because of the nature of people taking on huge challenges like some of the things that, that you've um, been, been taking on and obviously medicine as we've already said I guess in this conversation is its own challenge but then you know pursuing these other goals and projects paths etc the thing that pops up a lot is imposter syndrome um, that can then creep in that can stop people from um, achieving their goals from even starting getting started is it is that something that you've ever had to deal with along the way is there any um, if, if so is there any sort of particularly effective um, way that you, you've sort of counted those, some of those thoughts that can creep in? Um, I'd say all the time. Yeah. Um, imposter syndrome, yeah. I still have moments when I'm getting used to it now, but, you know, when I first got my, I just, my consultant job, I was thinking, gosh, they really want me. <laughs> and as I said, with writing, one of the reasons I started writing is that I, I just thought I was a, not, I was a bad writer. So I had to practice. And so I think for me, it's kind of driven me to do better. I've always felt like I've had to try a little harder to be really prepared for things. 
So when I take on something new, again, always feeling a bit impostery. And so I go and really read up on how to do it properly. I ask other people how to do it properly. And so in some ways, well, there is that little bit of insecurity there. I think I've tried to turn it into a strength. I mean, I guess you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what we said at the start when you, you, know, you, you from the very get go, you didn't think that you'd been smart enough to get any medicine in the first place. So I guess that's something by the sounds of it that, you, that you've always sort of been able to counter. Hopefully, it's gotten by the sounds of it much easier these days. I guess that comes with the wins that you that you rack up along the way, and the, that you're looking back at the things you have achieved. It does, it does. And I am always trying to challenge myself and find new things and then sort of coming back at that imposter syndrome <laughs> again. But in some ways, I said, I think, it's, I think it helps me do better. In terms of trying new things, what, you know, you don't, you don't seem like the sort of person that's going to be sort of sitting around um, <laughs> in the same things for, 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 for too long. What's, what, do you have a sort of plan overall of what the way that you, you want your career to go has there been a plan or is it because you know, in talking to CCM people that some there are a lot of people that they, they seem to fall into two groups some people that um have a really set plan of, of the things that they want to set out and achieve whether it's um, particular roles or projects like a book or a business or a side hustle whatever it might be and they're going out and doing that and making that happen other people because of the nature of their work and the people that they're working with and, and collaborating with on things seem to have Idea, you know, opportunities that pop up along the way, and they sort of so can pick things that, that align with their their interests and, and values at the time. Which do, do you sort of fall in either of those, or are you straddling them? How does it sort of work for you and your your careers choices? I'd say mentally I'm straddling, but I think practically I'm probably more in the I, I didn't quite more in the I guess the, the panther group, and not necessarily knowing which way things are going. <laughs> and I think that if someone said to me, you know, five years ago that maybe, you know, six or seven years ago that I was going to have, you know, done a PhD and written a book and all that, I would have just, wouldn't have thought it was possible. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm someone who, I do make opportunities, but I, I also take opportunities as they come up. And so I've got a vague idea of where I want things to go in the next few years, but I'm also very open to possibilities and really acknowledging that things haven't always gone the way I originally thought they would go, but it's worked out for the best. Finally, in this series, I think mean, you've given a few sort of pointers along the way in this conversation already, but obviously those people who might have heard previous episodes, something I always like to ask is what advice um, the people I'm speaking to might have for others who, who may be interested in pursuing the kinds of things that, that, that they get our guests are talking about. Um, what would you say to anyone who might be interested in, you know, in, in going out there, writing a book, um, starting um, a project like something, you know, like whether it's... Um, uh, Something similar to you know some you know health focused business like you have with three six swap obviously you know, perhaps in a, in a different setting. What, what would you say to people who who might be interested in following those kinds of um, uh, opportunities? I think that I guess when I think back on myself, you know, I guess the advice I'd give to myself, I would say that I often underestimated what I was able to do, and so I think. Don't underestimate, but also ask for help, ask for advice. And I've got people I call on when I've got something I don't know how to do, both in-work mentors or friends. The support group around you is so important. And if you really want to do something, just give it a red-hot go. 
Massive, massive thank you to Dr. Kate Gregorovich for her time and for being part of the CCIM podcast. Another quick reminder to head over to creativecareersinmedicine.com and register for CCIM 2021 and for any aspiring speakers. Obviously, you get those abstracts in if you've not already done so. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. I'll be back with more episodes soon, so stay safe and stay tuned.